Well, here we are once again in the book of Romans, and as we come to our study this morning, I want to remind you that Romans is one of the most theologically comprehensive books in the New Testament, and therefore the whole Bible. I'm not necessarily saying it's the hardest to understand. I'm not necessarily saying that Romans is challenging and therefore come in the evening service and listen to the book of Revelation, which of course there is no difficulty in understanding. But Romans 11 may be the most theologically challenging chapter of the most theologically comprehensive book in the Bible. But Jesus prayed for us that the Father would sanctify us in the truth, and this portion of God's Word is a part of that truth that is for our growth and grace. And so I commend you as you've been working through this with me, and I ask you afresh to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, which means you give your mind to understanding this truth of God. And I remind you of Peter's words, preparing your minds for action. Let's give ourselves to the understanding of God's truth. Paul was not lazy when he wrote this book, assisted by the Holy Spirit, and may we not be lazy in our study, hopefully assisted by that same Holy Spirit. Paul is in a time of the book of Romans where he is looking out to defend the gospel, to share the gospel. He has already been through the area of Palestine, through the area there of Asia Minor. He's been uh, into Greece or will shortly be there. But he is looking to the end. So as he looks eventually to coming to Rome, it's not only I'll be at Rome and I'll get to preach the gospel. He says, I want through you to be taken on to Spain. And that's the perspective of biblical Christianity. We're looking to where we can take the gospel to the glory of God. In our introduction to Romans 11 last week, we're asking the question, who are God's true people? What are God's people called in the Old Testament? How are the Old Covenant and New Covenant people of God compared? And does the Old Testament know of a regenerate Israel? Well, there are times where the Israelites are spoken of of as regenerate, but there are these two levels And the New Testament, of course, is underscoring that a nation is regenerate, the true people of God. So in the Old Testament, you've got these two circles. You've got the larger circle of the physical nation and then the true remnant, the true Israel. Not everyone in the nation of Israel was converted. Uh, Esau was not the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, plainly were not. There is this smaller group within. When we come to the New Testament church, there is the goal that everyone be within, everyone being within the church should be truly regenerate, but yet there are still some blots and blemishes, and we're never going to get it 
exactly right and perfect until we're a part of the church that is there in heaven. But as we look at Jeremiah, I'm going to skim ahead here in our review. We can't cover everything of last Lord's Day. But we want to see these three distinctives between the Old Testament Israel and the New Covenant Israel. The first, in the green, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. All the people of God will be regenerate, meaning they will have God's law on their heart, and they want to do the things that please God, even as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Secondly, God's new covenant people will all know God. This is verse 34, highlighted in the yellow. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And this is just highlighting what we've seen already, that there is that larger group. There's only the remnant, the elect, the smaller amount that are true believers within, so that within the nation of Israel, you would need to evangelize in the covenant community. I'm saying that there's a coming time for the covenant community where pretty much everyone, and that is the goal, that everyone in the church will be converted. And then finally, the third distinctive, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And here we're looking at the little bulge coming out of the nation of Israel, the true Israel. Some of those on that perimeter weren't really, they were not uh, Jews. They did not have Abrahamic DNA, Job, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth, are these that were regenerate, part of the covenant community, but they're kind of the exceptions, hinting to us that there will be a Gentile inclusion that is coming. Well, for our purposes, when we come to Romans 11, we need to understand who the true people of God are in the book of Romans. And what you see on this side of the chart is something of the physical nation. Those who have Abrahamic DNA in them. Some of them may be believers and some of them not. Here on this side, we've got the picture of the new covenant people of God, where everyone is to know God. And let's see how this is addressed in the book of Romans. Well, there in Romans 2, we have in the gray those who are physical Jews. It's those who are Jews outwardly. Circumcision is outward and physical. But the true Jew, now in the yellow and in the green, is one inwardly, where God has circumcised the heart and has regenerated them and brought them to faith in the Lord Jesus. Then as we come to Romans chapter 9, we see on the one hand a physical Israel contrasted uh, with a spiritual Israel. Notice particularly uh, verse 6, and you have to see this. You have to see that there in the gray is one kind of Israel, for not all who are descended from Israel, that's Abrahamic DNA, that is a physical Jew, 
but not all of those who are physical Jews, those from Israel, belong to Israel. Is Paul involved in some kind of doublespeak? No, he is expecting that we're going to come along and plainly understand that simply if you have Abraham's DNA, that does not mean that you are a true Christian. The great issue is to have Abraham's faith, not Abraham's DNA. And so there is something of that contrast. Then later on in verse 8, This contrast is seen, children of the flesh versus children of God. Back to our chart. Now we come to Romans 11. Verse 1 speaks of a physical people of God. Has God rejected them? And then verse 2 speaks of a people of God that is foreknown in the sense of foreloved. And then we have a picture here of physical Israel, latter part of verse 2, Elijah, let me jump ahead here, uh, where there is Elijah versus Israel. And again, this is a striking picture where Elijah is contending against Israel before God, where Elijah the prophet is doing this, and in the gray, This Israel is killing the prophets, and they're trying to kill Elijah as well. Then we find it further in verse 7, this contrast, physical Israel with the elect, the gray Israel, Israel according to the flesh, they failed to obtain. They didn't get a relationship with God. But in the green, the elect, that smaller group within the larger circle did obtain salvation. Well, with that, let's see how this comes uh, to fulfillment in someone of a very religious, uh, physical Jew at the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem, desiring that uh, God would be pleased to hear their prayers. And uh, here's, here's the tragedy. Here's a man standing there with his Old Testament copy of the Scriptures. He's praying that God is going at the wailing wall there at the, the, the blue, praying that God is going to give them a temple, and they're so preoccupied with wanting the physical, wanting the temple, wanting the outward sign, that he fails to consider that it's in his book, in his hands, that there are the many prophecies that speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his focus should not be so much on a restoration of a physical temple as on thinking of the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, with that, let's come Uh, to our study this morning. And if you care, your handout sheet, uh, you'll see with me Roman numeral one, the question. The question that comes in verse one and then again in verse seven, but the question that comes in verse one, the question concerning God's rejection of his people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his physical people? 
Has he rejected those? Well, notice how he speaks of it in the latter part of verse 1. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so having asked that question, I believe there are several answers that Paul is going to give. Let's work our way through them. First of all, if there is this question, has God rejected Israel, Israel according to the flesh. First of all, A, the answer from Paul's own salvation, latter part of verse 1. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, descended, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And what is significant about the tribe of Benjamin is that Benjamin is the youngest child of Jacob's favorite wife, most beloved wife, Rachel. And Benjamin is the only one of all of the sons that was born in the promised land. And this seems to be behind what, what Paul can say in that I, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That is, if anybody is a Hebrew, I am a Hebrew. Martin Luther suggested that Paul, as one who so opposed Christianity, and yet God reached into his murderous hard heart against Christians, and he changed that heart and drew Paul to himself. This is proof that God has not cast off all of his people. So we know that Paul, as a Jew is the one that God has sent so that he could preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It's not, he's there critically if Abraham's descendants are going to become a blessing to all of the nations, and if that blessing is Jesus Christ, then you need someone to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. And here's Paul. And what's he called later in the book of Romans? He's called, later in this chapter, he's called the apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul, as a fierce persecutor of God's children, and yet God changes his heart and draws him to himself. So God has not absolutely rejected all Jews, rejected all all of his people, and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them at all. But see here something of the convergence of God's sovereignty that we've been seeing in chapter 9 and human responsibility regarding the gospel in chapter 10. God sovereignly chose Paul, Romans 9, who was formerly a hater of Jesus, and a hater of Jesus' people. Paul willingly held the coats, supervised the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. Paul thought that he was serving God by securing the authority that he could travel to foreign cities, find believers, and imprisonment them, and to have them killed. Certainly, Paul does not deserve a relationship with God. He does not deserve a relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet 
God, in wonder of wonders, reaches in and draws this murderous Paul to himself. But now here's the other side. Here's the evangelism. Once he is converted, Paul doesn't spend the rest of his life in some sort of racial prejudice against all these Gentiles. But his heart has been melted. He gets over his grudge against God for branching out, and he actually becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And he embraces this which he has given to us in Romans chapter 10. How are they going to call on God if they have not believed? And how are they going to believe if they have not heard? And how are they going to hear if someone doesn't preach? And how is someone going to preach if the church doesn't send them? And so this one who is going out trying to find Christians to kill them and imprison them is now working in the context of the Christian church to be sent so they can preach to the end that there are those who will believe. Do you see the convergence here of divine sovereignty and human responsibility? God has worked in my heart And so I desire to get him glory throughout the earth. As we work this week in this evangelistic enterprise called VBS, may God draw near to us and give us hearts that yearn that children will believe, that we will have opportunity of building bridges with parents to the end that they would be open to the gospel. And we know that this gospel goes forward in the clearly spoken words concerning Jesus Christ. But we know this gospel also goes forward where there is this interaction by those whose lives adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the question, there's the first answer, the answer of Paul's own salvation. Secondly, B, the answer from God's for loving his people, F-O-R-E, for loving his people, loving his people beforehand. This is the message of the first part of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And I am suggesting that Paul is using the word people in two different senses. Just like in Romans 9 and verse 6, he used Israel in two different senses. The physical nation of Israel and the true Israel, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why do I say this? Well, notice the huge difference in meaning. Verse 1 is his people in the sense that it's physical Israel. But now in verse 2, it is a people that God has foreloved. This takes us back to Romans 8 and verse 29, where there is this foreloving, 
And whoever it is, the same group that God loves beforehand is the group that he predestines, is the group that he calls, is the group that he justifies, is the group that he glorifies. Though his people, being foreloved, are already on the conveyor that is going to bring them to heaven. Listen to Stuart Elliott's words on this. He has already used for new in chapter 8, 29, in the sense of intimately loved beforehand. There he made it clear that all whom God intimately loved eternally would certainly be glorified, and this clarifies what Paul is saying here. Within the physical nation of Israel are certain individuals whom God has eternally loved and chosen to save. The nation as a nation has been rejected, as he has explained. But because there are elect individuals within the Jewish nation, the nation cannot be said to have been totally rejected. God has not cast off the people whom he foreknew. Little c. Answer number three, the answer from Elijah's complaint against physical Israel. And I invite your attention here to the latter part of verse two and into three. I think this is one of the more striking examples that Paul could have reached for back there in the Old Testament, latter part of verse two. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So here we've got the picture of God's prophet against God's people. And the reason you've got God's prophet against God's people Israel is because this people Israel have been murdering others of God's prophet. Now there's something wrong with this. And what is wrong with this is that Israel as a nation had gone so far south, so far into the world, that they were fighting against God's spokesman to that nation. Listen to what Elijah said. He thought that he was the only true child of God in that Abrahamic nation that was alive at the time. I'm the only one left, he says. And God says, no, there's 7,000. And that may sound like a lot to us, but we're going to look at that in just a moment. But here's the point. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Romans 9 and verse 6. Fourthly, the fourth answer. Now from verse 4 to 6. The answer from God's remnant within physical Israel. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
So notice with me, little one under D, a regenerate remnant of physical Israel in Elijah's day. This is verse 4. I have kept 7,000 men for myself. 7,000 is probably to be understood in the sense that, well, 7,000 men and the women and the children. It's, it's kind of built off of how the nation of Israel would number their men. How many men do we have that are ready to go out and fight? Well, so they counted the men that were going to be ready to fight. But if you want to know how many are in the nation, you've got to add their wives and you've got to add the children. I found, someone has written, that there are 1.3 million men listed in David's army, or listed as they could be in the army, from year, from 20 years of age upward. And that particular author then estimates, if you've got 1.3 million men, age 20 and up, then that means that you have about 5 million people living in the time of David. Where am I going with this? Well, Elijah lived about 100 years later. But Elijah lived when there was the dividing of the kingdom. And so Elijah is talking about the northern ten tribes. So I'm just picking a number at three or four million And if you take 7,000 and compare that to the 3 or 4 million, then what we end up with is that the 7,000 true believers are somewhere between 2% and 9% of the nation. What that means is between 91 and 98% are on their way to hell based on what God has said. There's 7,000, that's it. We're not talking about all of the world. We're not talking about Egypt, Assyria, Greece. We're talking about Israel as a nation. Things were bad, folks. Things were bad. And 7,000, maybe it's not an exact number. 7,000, we take in the significance of the number seven. It's a, it, it's a rounded number. It's a complete number. It's a, it's a perfect number. But it is these individuals in days of smallness where God says, I have kept for myself. I have left myself. It's not due to Elijah's energy. He didn't even know they were believers. But it's up to God. Well, it serves to illustrate not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Romans 9 and verse 6 again. But let us not despise the day of small things. If we see the percentage of true believers compared to the vast number in our nation, that it's a small number, well, what are you going to do? Walk away from God? I would argue that it's all the more important for the glory of God for you to stand up 
and be a faithful witness for this God, for the hope that the tide will change and God will bring many more to himself. Well, so under D, we've looked at one, a regenerate remnant of physical Israel in Elijah's day. And now we're going to come to little number two, a regenerate remnant of physical Israel in Paul's day. Verse five, so too at the present time, there was a remnant chosen by grace. Not everybody in Elijah's day as an Israelite was truly converted. And not every Israelite in our day, Paul says, in the first century is truly converted. Paul judged that in a sense the times of Elijah had returned. In Elijah's day, Jehovah's prophets had been slain. And in Paul's day, who got slain? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was the greatest of all of the prophets. Nevertheless, as was true in the days of Elijah, so also now, not all was dark. There were true believers, true believers among the physical nation. But guess what? Verse 5 illustrates again, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Those of us who have prayed over the decades for Pastor Baruch Meoz as a Jewish pastor there in Israel, we would get the sense that there are some true believers in the nine million people living in Israel today. But believing in Jesus Christ is the focus of only a small persecuted minority among the Jews in Israel today. Little number three, the gracious explanation of the remnant. There are many that are not converted. There are some that are, verse 5, a remnant chosen by grace. See the explanation in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Israel, as we've seen in the book of Romans, is constantly thinking of, how am I going to work my way to God? And it's not just in an Israelite's heart. That is what is native to the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. Well, if I fix this, and if I do this little thing, if I paint some shiny stuff over the top of my heart here, it's going to look good to God, and I will be accepted into heaven. No, Paul is underscoring it's not on the basis of works. And he is saying there is this remnant that they are chosen by God's grace, and God's grace is grace. I'll add again. We cannot miss what Paul is saying. Israel as a whole has been cast off, the larger part of the nation. But the nation whom God has never cast off is the nation of his elect, his spiritual Israel, some of whom were a part of that larger circle of physical Israel. There is a remnant, but it has never consisted of the whole 
physical nation of Israel. And I say that verse 6 illustrates chapter 9 and verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Well, there's the first question. Come with me to Roman numeral 2 now to the question concerning physical Israel's success. What then? What is the ultimate outcome of physical Israel and spiritual Israel? We're looking at verse 7. What then? What's going to come of them? And here it is in plainest terms. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, you may not like the message of verse 7, but I think that you can understand the message of verse 7. And what are we finding here? When Paul is asking this second question, what then, we get, first of all, the answer of A, the answer of physical Israel's failure. Physical Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, who is Israel here? Is it spiritual Israel? Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's got to be physical Israel. Plainly, the national Israel, in contrast to the elect in the latter part of verse 7, And how bad did they want this? How intent were they on aligning with God or having a relationship with God? Well, Paul speaks of it by adding an intensifier to the verb of seeking. They were intently seeking. But seeking in a way they wanted to. Let me illustrate. If you've got a football offensive line coach, then he's going to take those big guys, line them up behind the heavy sled, and he's going to tell them, I want you to start pushing this sled, and I want you to push it all the way down there until you get to the goalpost. You got it? Go! And they take off, and immediately they turn right, and they go off of the field and into the parking lot. They're really, really pushing hard. Is the coach going to be pleased? Well, that's the sense of Israel. God is the coach who said, I want you to seek me, and that means by grace. That means you have to believe in me, and then it will be imputed to you for righteousness' sake. But they say, no, no, we're going this way. So who cares if they are intently seeking God if they're intently seeking God in a way that puts fingers in the ears and they're not listening to God the coach. How successful was physical Israel in aligning with God? They absolutely were not successful. Israel failed to obtain. But it's actually plainer than what it comes to us in the English. It is the elect did attain. And the wording here for Israel is Israel did not attain. Did not obtain what they were looking for. This is extremely sobering. 
And it's extremely sad. Someone can be extremely religious. Someone can be standing there at the wailing wall offering their prayers to God. Maybe put a little paper in the wedge there of the stone. Can even be holding their Old Testament copy of the scriptures as they're praying to God that it restore a temple and restore the sacrifices. But that's like those linemen pushing in the wrong direction and running off out into the parking lot. Because that book in his hand is telling him about Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross less than a mile away from where he's standing. But they don't want to hear that. Is there any relevance for us? Well, we can be self-righteous too, can't we? And so there's broad application to the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you will obey Jesus Christ and push towards the goal line, and if you will repent of your sin, and if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. It's not a matter of being religious any old way and pushing uh, that sled into the park. That's not what God wants. Jesus is talking about these with an empty form of professing Christ. And in a similar way, the Jews are devoted to works righteousness. Well, that, I have to ask this question then, right? What kind of relationship do you have with God? Do you have a relationship where you are believing in God, you're embracing the gospel that tells you to own your sin? What sin? I'm a good person. If that's your defense, then you've already turned the sled and you're halfway into the parking lot. It means that just because you are religious, you're not going to be in heaven. Eli may have been a weak believer, but everything that we can gather from the Scriptures concerning Hophni and Phinehas his sons portrays that they have no reason to be expecting heaven whatsoever. They were immoral men taking advantage of women. They were irreligious men that took, play, took advantage of their religious privilege, sacrifices being offered, and he says, no, I want this for myself. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do not think that you can honor God with the lips, or oh, Jesus, I believe in you, Jesus, I've raised my hand, and now I know that I'm converted, and that's the end of my religious experience. 
No, if you are truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will bring about a changed life. Old things will pass, and the new things will come to stay. So, A, Israel's failure, and now in the latter part of verse 7, the answer, this is B, the answer of the elect's success. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The The elect obtained it. The remnant, those chosen by God, those that God leads to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they receive a relationship with God. They are going to be in heaven. But if you're here this morning as a believer, I suggest that you not reach too far around on your back and be patting yourself on how wonderful you are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and how smart you are to do this. Because the very term here, the elect, speaks of God's choice of you. And God's choice of you was first before you chose him. Remember chapter 9 where we've been. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 9.16. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now you need to repent, and you need to believe, and that's going to take some effort. But ultimately, it is traced back to the kindness and the grace of God. First answer, physical Israel's failure. Second answer, B, the elect success. Thirdly, C, the answer of the rest's hardening. Latter part of verse 7 into verse 10. Here's one of the advantages of expositional preaching. If I were simply going through, oh, I like this verse, I like that verse, I like this verse, I'll preach on this one sometime and this one, this would never make it to most men's list, would it? But if you're committed to starting at the beginning of the book and moving through the book, and if you're seeking to display that all of God's word is valuable for us, and if I try to do that, then someone's going to say, uh, I noticed you skipped over four verses today. What's that about? Well, we can't do that. So notice with me, under C, another little one, Paul's plain statement of the hardening. Latter part of verse 7. But the rest were hardened. What does he mean by the rest? Well, think of the big circle. That's all of physical Israel. Think of the smaller circle. That's the remnant. That's the true Israel. That's the true believers. That's the elect. So you got this small circle inside of the big one, and you've got the small circle obtained it, but all the rest were hardened. It's not my theology. It's God's theology. It's Paul's theology. And God even draws attention to the fact. In verse 8, notice Isaiah's explanation of the hardening. Verse 8, 
A quote now from, what is it, Isaiah 29 and verse 10, I believe. God gave them a spirit of stupor, verse 8. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Murray writes, verses 8 to 10, these Old Testament passages are pulled in to support and confirm the proposition in verse 7, the rest were hardened. One writes, God visited the nation with slumber so that it could not see or hear and thus could not avail itself of its spiritual privileges. The state of affairs which prevailed then prevails now. And it may very well be that God is saying, I have spoken so many times to the nation of Israel. They've got all of my truth. Why, they can even stand there before the wailing wall with their Old Testament scriptures in their hands but they will not read them. They will not look at Isaiah 53 and say, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Further, verse 9 and 10. Now we're looking at little number 3. David's confirmation. Okay, you don't like Isaiah for some reason? Let me reach for David. And David's quotation here in verse 9 and 10 comes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. Let me help you to see that. Verse 9 of Psalm 69 is, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Remember hearing that from Jesus when he was cleansing the temple? Psalm 69 and verse 21, For my thirst they gave me sour wine. So when Paul is reaching back to Psalm 69 and in verse uh, verse 9 and 10 of Romans 11, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What is going on? It's a messianic psalm. So in a sense, it's Jesus against hard-hearted Jews. Hard-hearted Jews that are going to murder the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. Murray writes, the table stands for the bounties of God's providence placed on it. And the thought may be that Those concerned are conceived of partaking these gifts in ease and content. But they should have recognized that in God's good gifts coming to them, they owe an allegiance to God, but they didn't. They refuse God's Messiah. And in refusing God's Messiah, it's these privileges did not work as they should have, and it actually tripped them up. They get proud because we're the people of God. God has spoken to us. God's given us all these prophets. We're the wonderful people of God. No one's ever going to touch this temple. We can, we can go to the bank on it. There was a judicial blinding in verse, seven, verse 8, and it's more plain in verse 10. It speaks of eyes being darkened. 
It doesn't matter how plainly you present the gospel to them, the eyes are closed. It doesn't matter how plainly you sound it, their ears are closed to it. I know this is offensive. I know this is not politically correct. But I also know it is the plain message of God's inspired book, and we need to embrace it. Remember how the Jews and something of their interaction back and forth at the crucifixion, they're crying for Jesus to be crucified. When Pilate wants to let him go, beats him and says, okay, now I got him all bloody. Isn't that good enough for you guys? And they want him to be crucified. And they say, let his guilt be on us. They so lightly regarded Jesus Christ and were so convinced that they were right that they wholeheartedly participated in the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then they're willing to volunteer for the guilt for it. No, no. No, no. And God says, I'll take you up on that. I'm going to blind your eyes, and I'm going to stop up your ears. What do we learn? Fourthly, D. Learn that God teaches us by object lessons. In Romans 11, we're talking about the Abrahamic people. It takes us back to Abraham, the father of the physical nation, and Abraham, the father of the believing nation. God promised Abraham a land which Abraham came very quickly to understand that the promised land was not really Palestine here on earth, but it was a heavenly land. It's a place to live. Read it in Hebrews 11. But there's an object lesson. I'm going to tell you about this land, and it starts here by the Mediterranean Sea, goes over here to the Jordan River, goes down about the Afar, and comes up to this river here. And once, okay, we got a place to live in this world. But what God was really promising Abraham was a place to live in the life to come. It's a heavenly land. Number two. God promised Abraham a blessing, that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And sometimes people say, well, the United States needs to be a friend of Israel, and then that's going to turn around and be a blessing on us. God will take care of us. Whatever that may be or may not be, I think it misses the main point. The main point of Israel And Abraham, being a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth, is that Jesus Christ is shared with them. When the Macedonian man speaks to the Apostle Paul in his vision, you remember that in Paul's life? And the Macedonian says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And, and Paul said, oh, okay, I need to go help them build houses. 
uh, I need to help them get their finances straightened out. I need to give them a big gift. No, Paul concluded that God had called him to preach the gospel. That's how we help. That's how we become a blessing to the nations in Paul's mind. So here it is. Once again, God is teaching us by an object lesson. Whatever physical thing it is that you, that whatever blessing you attain from helping is, no, there's a, there's a spiritual lesson. There's a heavenly blessing which is sharing the gospel. Thirdly, God promised Abraham a nation. At first, it was a physical nation of Israel. And a physical nation is good. But a heavenly nation is better. To be a part of that spiritual heavenly nation, what do you need? Well, if you want to be a part of the physical nation of Israel, it's a little late. But if you want to get in there, then you've got to be born by those who've got Jewish and Abrahamic DNA in them. You've got to be born into that family. And in the same way, if you want to be in the heavenly nation of those who believe like Abraham, then you have to be born by the Spirit of God. You have to be a part of that heavenly nation by being born to new life that leads you to faith. I'm going to close this morning with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, John 3, Nicodemus comes as a ruler of the Israelites. He comes to Jesus by night. He's already a physical Jew. He's already a part of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the top 70 ruling men in all of Israel. He's a leader in the physical nation. And he goes to Jesus at night. And Jesus spoke to this leader with a measure of urgency. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus saying, I don't really care whether or not you have Jewish DNA in you. What really matters is that the Spirit of God gives you new life. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I don't know if you were counting, but that's the fourth time. In this brief Verse 3 to verse 8, where Jesus has said, you've got to be born again, you've got to be born again, you need this spiritual birth. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit.
Doesn't matter if you're part of the physical nation. You need to become a part of the spiritual nation, Nicodemus. And this is how it happens. And if right where you're sitting, wherever you are, you will plead to Jesus Christ to give you the new birth, if you will own your sin, and if you will trust the weight of your never-dying soul on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's merits alone, then you will be saved. You will become a part of that heavenly nation, the true people of God. And then that oft-repeated theme of God speaking to his people will be true of you. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Let's thank God for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in the days of the fulfillment of prophecies. We thank you that we may look back to our Old Testament scriptures and see so many pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can look back to the beginning of your covenant with Abraham and we can see that you were promising even then at the beginning that through Abraham, through Abraham's seed, there will be blessing that comes to all of the families of the earth. And we thank you for that promise. And we thank you even more for its fulfillment. And we thank you that you made a Jew like the Apostle Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And we thank you that in your providence the gospel has come to us. And we thank you, Spirit of God, that you've caused us to be born again so that we have embraced this gospel from the heart. We bless you for it. We pray for those sitting to the left, to the right of us, behind, in front, and ask our God that you would be pleased to take your truth and own it and make everyone under the sound of my voice to know assuredly that we must be born of the Spirit if we would see the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.